Welcome to The Wood Podcast, where we explore solutions to some of the world's most critical challenges in energy and the built environment. I'm your host, Lauren Gallagher. Thank you for joining the second episode of Confronting the PFAS Challenge, where wood experts will discuss new treatment technologies, effective remediation strategies, and what's next for PFAS. Today's experts will provide a better understanding of ongoing R&D and the future of PFAS remediation. I'd like to introduce Nathan Hagelin, Director of Wood's Global Technical Expert Network and a champion for developing innovative remediation technologies. Nathan joins us from Portland, Maine. Also joining us is Mark Solner, Europe PFAS lead, a leading advisor on remediation of contaminated land and groundwater. Mark joins us from Nuremberg, Germany. And last but not least, we have Bill Malik, Global PFAS Water Treatment Lead. Bill joins us from Cambridge, Ontario. PFAS are often referred to as forever chemicals because their properties make them difficult and costly to remediate. What new promising technologies are in research and development? Nathan, what are your thoughts? Thank you, Lauren. Uh, indeed, there is a, a tremendous amount of research and development going on. It's a, a big focus of the U.S. Department of Defense and academia, and there are a lot of technology startups uh, popping up. Uh, just mentioned quickly, a company out of Boston, Helonia, was uh, launched this past fall with a $40 million infusion of cash to develop bioremediation technologies for PFAS. Um, the, the challenge is the chemicals themselves are very difficult to break down um, and the traditional technologies that we have uh, may be able to modify to, to help with the PFAS challenge. And so what we're trying to do is optimize and make more efficient these pump and treat systems um, in, in developing, innovating around PFAS treatment trains. There's a big focus on destructive technologies now to deal with remediation waste, uh, soil, aqueous film forming foam. And we've recently learned that uh, traditional incineration may not be fully effective and could in fact be spreading PFAS and related compounds in the environment. That is a wonderful point that you make um, with the treatment trains. Uh, there are a variety of um, technologies that are looked at that specifically take into consideration um, the surfactant properties that these PFAS molecules have as an advantageous back in the days when we wanted them, um, also um, opportunity to remediate them. Uh, a firm in Germany developed a product uh, that creates um, uh, coaguloids through a flocculation process for high PFAS concentrations and in, in water streams that need to be treated, adding uh, those flocculants help um, remove a mass of PFAS before the water continues on, for example, to activated carbon or ion exchange resins. Is Wood involved in any research and development projects? Personally, I'm, I'm working on optimizing a regenerable form of ion exchange and coupling that with an on-site uh, destruction technology using plasma to try to reduce or eliminate waste, uh, minimizing waste in, in, in such a way that we can have a sort of a closed loop solution to deal with these contaminants, again, in the context of an ex situ pump and treat system. Further to, to uh, Nathan's point about um, on-site destruction um, 
and, and destruction methods, the you know the research continues to go beyond the the traditional landfilling and and incineration. Um, Nathan and I are are part of uh, a you know a, a project a research project that's looking at at alternative ways to manage um, manage PFAS waste um, in a sustainable manner. So adding sustainability to the equation and not just destruction. Um, so that, I think that's some some interesting research that's uh, that's ongoing that uh, that Wood is participating in. Um, in Germany, for example, we have very restricted landfill space. It takes forever to get new permits, um, specifically ones that are able to receive PFAS waste. They have to be specifically built, so it will be good to find solutions to up concentrate. Um, water streams to wash soils and to come up with on-site technologies to destroy them right then and there, um, to not um, having to need off-site resources where we sometimes basically just shift the problem from one location to the other. Yeah, you know, I think the, the key takeaway here is that the, the approaches continue to evolve. Um, you know, the treatment strategies that we're using today may be different than treatment strategies that we're going to use in the future. And, you know, as a good example of that, there was a, a project that we completed um, that we, we dealt with high strength PFOS containing wastewater. And in that system, we developed in association with Clean Harbors, we developed a treatment system to treat that, uh, that water down to very low concentrations, less than 70 parts per trillion. Um, the, the, the evolution of the treatment processes is such that, uh, you know, we're looking at another project of a very similar nature, and we're looking at ways to enhance that treatment train uh, that that really, you know, go beyond what we did previously. And that's really only in a matter of months. That all sounds fascinating. Hopefully some of those technologies will be available soon. The projected cost to clean up PFAS is in the tens of billions of dollars. The Department of Defense estimates their cost to treat impacted groundwater globally will reach $3 billion. Given the substantial funding required for this effort, what are the top considerations to develop an effective remediation strategy? Bill, do you want to kick off? Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Um, yeah, I think the, the costs are, are high, and, and in fact, those may be underestimated. Um, we're currently advising at a site, um, and, and they're right now already close to a billion dollars that have been spent to restore and protect groundwater in that area. Um, I think one of the key things that we've got to keep in mind is that um, there's different optimal approaches to treatment, and we can't get stuck in a one technology mode of, of thinking um, in, in terms of trying to manage treatment. Yeah, Bill, that's that's an excellent point. Um, what conducted um, for the European Chemicals Agency and the European Commission a study on remediation costs um, <clears throat> for sites that are in transition or have been impacted from um, firefighting foams that contain PFAS. And the study found that individual site remediation could range somewhere between a half a million euros to up to 100 million euros per site. And this is only for firefighting foams. Nate, what are your thoughts? Uh, simply put, there's just not enough money to remediate uh, all the PFAS in groundwater. So 
our job is to apply you know, really good science and engineering um, solutions and, and to educate the public uh, and frankly to allay some of the, the fear that's come up around PFAS. From a remediation strategy perspective, I think we have to continue to invest in cutting off the completed exposure pathways, particularly drinking water as we're doing now. And that's where the focus and all the investment has been. From there, I think it's a pragmatic approach to stopping flux from active sources. But then we have to manage these immense groundwater plumes. And they are immense, really, by virtue of the fact that we're mapping them down to parts per trillion. I read that some firms may unknowingly use PFAS in their processes. What steps can be taken to determine potential risk? Yeah, well, I think that's that's some of the stuff that we're looking at with uh, with our clients is is really diving into their facilities and helping them from a a process perspective to understand what um, what parts of their their systems contain or may contain uh, perfluorinated compounds and and really working with them on how to uh, find ways to to either replace or or otherwise make their processes. Uh, have less of an impact from a perfluorinated perspective uh, through through replacement uh, of of the the fluorine containing materials uh, with with alternatives. Um, yeah, to add to that, Bill, um, this is what we start to advise on clients as well: um, a vulnerability assessment because there are potentially many parts of an industrial process where PFAS can be of, of issue. It's the, the manufacturing process itself. It's the use in secondary um, ancillary equipment. It could be from processing water, um, hitting the own uh, wastewater treatment facility, and it still goes undetected uh, to public waters unknowingly. So we advise clients to look at um, their different streams that could or possibly not contain PFAS uh, molecules in order to manage um, their assets accordingly um, down the road, sometimes here in Europe still before regulations take effect to do that. I think it's interesting to note about this whole topic of PFAS bans and PFAS replacement is that it is having a positive environmental effect. We are seeing a reduction of these contaminants in the environment already in human blood serum and in things like cow's milk over the last couple of decades, which is encouraging. As long as we are robust at the front end and remove these contaminants from the manufacturing process, firefighting foam, etc., at some point, perhaps we won't be so concerned about PFAS. Whether that will be during my career or even my lifetime, uh, I think remains to be seen. From banning PFAS in products to setting maximum contaminant levels in drinking water, the fast-moving policy landscape can be challenging to follow. What's next for PFAS, and how can firms be prepared to respond? Well, Lauren, one thing I think we can expect with the incoming Biden administration certainly is change. And I think the regulatory framework for PFAS may start to move forward a little more quickly. Certainly, the uh, 
Biden pick for the head of the EPA, Mike Regan out of North Carolina, uh, has had a focus on PFAS uh, with some of the challenges in, in his state, Cape Fear specifically. And I think he'll take some of that experience and passion with him into the EPA. Uh, in fact, this month, the EPA will deliver a determination on whether or not we need a maximum contaminant level MCL or a drinking water standard uh, for two of the most prominent and best studied, best understood chemicals, PFOS and PFOA. And there are draft versions of bills in the House and Senate that have uh, substantial PFAS language. Nathan, can you tell us more about what's in those draft bills? The House bill uh, sponsored by Chris Pappas requires EPA under the Clean Water Act to list PFAS as toxic pollutants and to establish effluent limits and pretreatment standards and human health water quality standards for measurable PFAS. Uh, and it also includes a $100 million grant for publicly owned treatment works to implement uh, PFAS treatment technology. And uh, the Senate version, uh, sponsored by Kirsten Gillibrand, um, also has effluent limits and pretreatment standards in it for uh, priority uh, industries, specifically the chemical industry, plastic industries, pulp and paper, textiles, are all going to have to come up to speed in the next uh, several years in eliminating PFAS. And then uh, PFAS monitoring is expected to be included in future surface water discharge permits, NIPTES permits, uh, as part of a required suite of monitoring parameters. You know, Nate, I, I think that's, you know, that's all, you know, the, the regulatory changes that are that are coming are really leading to the discharge limits for both direct discharge and, and sewer discharges. Um, one of the key things that I think we're going to see is that, you know, point source uh, treatment is going to be a key consideration in managing PFOS. Bill, what's next for Canada? So in, in Canada, uh, PFOS is being closely followed. And as in other countries, the provincial environmental agencies are responsible for the regulatory management with directives from our uh, our Canadian environmental uh, uh, agencies, and and they're really looking to manage manage sites. And the, you know some of the most impacted sites are uh, you know there's a number of Department of Defense, probably 25 Department of Defense facilities, um, and and more than 40 Transport Canada facilities across Canada that are really the primary focus right now of regular regulators and, and agencies. Mark, what are things looking like in Europe? In Europe, I think we are really strong at this point with the European um, Chemicals Agency and the European Commission to proactively investigate alternative approaches or the impact of PFAS-containing materials. So the proactive um, policy making is definitely happening on the back end when um, remediation occurs. Uh, we have framework guidance that comes from the European level um, that goes over the, the, the member states. They have to enact it at a certain point in time. Um, many member states are more active, um, mostly because they have bigger problems, such as airports. Airports are prone to having PFAS issues. Um, military sites are prone to having issues, specifically the larger facilities. We have a couple of them in Germany, several uh, in Europe. Mark, do you have any tips for how folks should be prepared to respond? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Lauren. At the end of the day, I, I, I think it, 
it starts strategically um, managing accounts from uh, what do I have on the shelf, what needs to be replaced with fluorine-free material, uh, what is my footprint with respect to on-site and off-site um, concerns that my waste streams might have, for example, wastewater, and how can I minimize that directly where I'm at. And then obviously it's an international approach of finding good technologies um, to to tackle the problem um, long term. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you know we're seeing uh, some some proactive approaches where uh, fire training facilities are are really getting ahead of the curve. Um, and, and this is particularly impactful. You know, PFOS is particularly impactful in rural and northern communities in Canada that that rely really you know highly on groundwater for for their drinking water supplies so they tend to be you know quite vulnerable and so i think that's that's an area of concern in canada for sure well i'll tell you what uh, can come back to bite uh, some of our customers is is pfos uh, really becoming kind of a reopener as as states try to figure out how they're going to regulate and uh, and, and tackle this problem um, we're having to go back to sites that were even, you know, closed on paper and, and sample those sites for PFAS. So, you know, you never know what you're going to find, and it's good to be prepared. I really enjoyed learning more about PFAS remediation and how different geographies are responding. What's one key takeaway for our listeners? In my opinion, we will need to find on-site and eventually inside technologies that ultimately destroy PFAS. Um, currently, we resort to treatment train solutions, ex-situ and off-site solutions, um, of which not all destroy PFAS, but shift the problem to a different location. Well, Lauren, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to participate in a number of research and development opportunities around PFOS. And I think the key takeaway that I would have is that we really need to take the time to get a full understanding of the treatment challenges and thoroughly understand the options and implications of each option um, in terms of the efficacy uh, and operational challenges and costs associated with it. And part of that is understanding the chemistry and, and, and really tailoring treatment to meet the chemistry of, of PFOS. You know, I'd actually like to leave our audience on, uh, on a more hopeful note, because I, I believe we can solve this challenge and, and we're well on our way to doing that now. I, I know it, it seems like a daunting challenge because these contaminants are really hard to treat and destroy and they're so widespread in the environment. And we're really in the early days uh, in the process of this emerging contaminant class. But, you know, we've been through this before with other contaminants and we figured it out before. We have investigation techniques to find these contaminants and we have the beginnings of a set of uh, technologies, you know, along with some already promising technologies in development that can help us tackle this problem. And that brings us to the close of this episode of Confronting the PFAS Challenge where we explore the future of PFAS treatment. If you'd like to connect with today's guests or explore related insights, please visit us at woodplc.com podcast, where you can also subscribe and receive updates to the Wood podcast. At Wood, our curiosity keeps us pushing, innovating, making the impossible possible. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. Take care and be well.